1: Hello, hey Here's the back from the Washington Post. Hi, this is Beth Reinhardt at the Washington Post. Lori Aritani over at the Post. I'm This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, March 31st. Today, coronavirus in prisons, a community torn between saving businesses and saving lives, and families separated by social distancing.
0: There have been uh, uh, concern about those incarcerated, update, uh, in terms of our jail system. As of last night, over 650 inmates have been released.
1: In the last couple of weeks, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio has been doing something controversial, releasing people from jail to protect them from coronavirus.
0: Again, working uh, carefully with the state of New York and uh, the DAs and uh, being very, very mindful of public safety while also being mindful of deep humanitarian concern.
1: According to The New York Times, more than 300 inmates and staff in New York City jails have tested positive for COVID-19. Other jails and prisons around the country are facing the same prospect of a
2: mass outbreak. There are over 2 million people who are in county jails state prisons, and federal prisons. Kimberly Kindy is a national
1: investigative reporter. She and other reporters at The Post have been talking to people in prisons around the country, including one man being held at the Stanton Correctional Facility in Alabama.
0: Oh, it's, it's very scary now. It's very scary because, man, we, we are really, really doomed if we don't get
2: some help. In a lot of prisons, inmates are packed very close together. We're talking about the very opposite of what CDC is telling us about social distancing and a way for people to be safe.
0: Most of our problems come from the overcrowd.
2: There's lots of places where you have people who are in dormitory style settings, they're bunk beds. The distance between me and my
0: neighbor is three feet. Maybe, maybe.
2: There may be 16 people in
0: a room. If somebody sneezes right now, everybody in here is going to be a It's It's that tight. Also, this
2: community is not a healthy community. There are a number of people who are older. There are a number of people who are sick. They don't necessarily have the best sanitary conditions.
0: We got to use the same sink. We got to use the same shower, the same commodes. There's no cleaning supply nowhere else.
1: So what steps have state and federal prisons taken so far to address the coronavirus risk when it comes to the prison population?
2: It's all over the map. That's the thing that is really making it difficult, not only to track, but just for people who are concerned about the spread of this virus, there's a lot of fear about how there's no unified plan. You have some county jails and you have some state prisons they're really taking aggressive actions in terms of trying to, you know, get people out there who are just sitting there because they can't post bail.
0: At county jails across New Jersey, low-risk inmates set to be released to help. A total of 38 inmates are ordered released from the Cuyahoga County Jail Also tonight, San Francisco, Santa Clara Clara County, and Alameda Alameda County.
2: That's happening in a lot of local jurisdictions, but it was just after months really of pressure that the Department of Justice said that they're looking for ways to do early release for prisoners within the federal prison system. But it's still very unclear what they're going to do. And they have a very clear record of fighting against these motions for early release for people who are very old or very sick or both.
1: And what have prison administrators said about why it's so hard to get some of these people out of prison and in safer circumstances? Like, why is it so complicated?
2: One, when it comes to the U.S. Attorney's Office, when they have fought against efforts to get out, their arguments often are that the person has to serve their time and that it may be uncomfortable for them. But that is part of this consequence of what they've done. There are also some jurisdictions where they're saying, we think that they're safer if we keep them in prison or jail. We can keep them safe if we are able to lock them down. That, of course, is not a very popular way of handling this for people who are advocates for prisoners from both sides of the aisle.
1: Are there any other practices that prisons are putting in place for people that they're not considering releasing right now that they think could help prevent coronavirus from coming in or being spread around?
2: Well, one of the things that they're doing is they've begun doing screening for all of the people who are coming into the facility. Every county jail and every state prison is developing their own screening system. I'm hearing a lot of reports about people feeling like. It's not very secure or tight. For instance, I spoke to one person who was a correctional officer at a facility at a federal prison, and they're supposed to be doing screenings before they come in and then put a colored band around somebody's wrist. That would indicate when you pass somebody in the hall that they have been screened before they came in, and they're reporting that they're seeing people all over the place who are staffed after the second day of this new program, walking around without any color ban. I think a lot of people are starting to reassess things. For example, there are a lot of people who for a long time have said that there's a huge problem with the way we just handle bail. When a judge says you can be free if you post a certain amount of bail, they're saying that you should be able to be free provided that you have enough money.
1: And that's, as you're saying, that's an argument that people make all the time, but feels a lot more pressing right now when you're faced with the idea of whether you're sitting in jail or not sitting in jail during this outbreak could make the difference between whether you get infected and potentially die, or whether you're able to survive.
2: Exactly. We're really not talking about a murderer who, you know, can't post the six million dollar bail or whatever they might set for them. We're really talking about somebody who got arrested for traffic warrants they never paid. And they can't post a very small bail amount that was set for them because they're so poor that they can't even afford a $5,000 bail, a $2,000 bail, a $1,000 bail. And so there's a lot of people really looking more deeply at that system. If you're only in jail because you're too poor to post bail, should you be sitting in jail? Kimberly Kindy
1: is a national investigative reporter for The Post. On Monday, five New York City district attorneys wrote a letter to Mayor de Blasio warning him about the risks of releasing inmates accused of violent crimes in a, quote, seemingly haphazard process. In response, the chief physician at Rikers Island said that their opposition to the release of prisoners was, quote, a failure to appreciate the public health disaster unfolding before our eyes. Just tell me who you are and what you do.
3: I'm Cleve Randall-Woodson Jr. And normally, I'm a national political reporter for The Post who follows Joe Biden around the country. But over the last two weeks, I've been covering the coronavirus uh, in Florida. The a local family is grieving the loss of a father, a husband, and a man
1: who gave a lot to our community.
2: Conrad Buchanan is one of the youngest people in our area to pass away after getting the coronavirus. Right now,
1: Lee Health is treating 31 coronavirus patients.
3: 39-year-old Fort Myers' dad died after battling this virus for almost two weeks. Everything about this is... Is surreal, especially because I, you know, I'm reporting, but it's like war zone reporting because you're making incursions, but your incursions are into publics.
1: Lee County has the third highest number of COVID-19 deaths in the state. Florida's Surgeon General predicts we're at least six weeks away from the peak of the cases.
3: Which is just weird when I'm at like a vacation spring break hotspot.
1: So you're in Fort Myers right now. Tell me more about what this place is like pre-coronavirus.
3: Palm trees, Gulf Coast. Right. This is this is where spring breakers and snowbirds trying to escape winter in the north and you know, families with small children will converge really around this time to dip their toes in the Gulf Coast. And it definitely skews conservative. You know, most of the members of city council are are conservative, are Republican. Definitely a very pro business place.
1: And why did you think Fort Myers was an important place to go to when it comes to the coronavirus outbreak?
3: On one hand, a lot of Republican politicians, including the president, including the governor here, have been really against wholesale lockdowns of communities.
0: America will again and soon be open for business. Parts of our country are very lightly affected.
3: When you're ordering people to shelter in place, You are consigning a number, probably hundreds of thousands of Floridians to lose their jobs. have
0: to go back to work. Our country has to go back. And
3: so a lot of the people who are kind of lower level politicians have been also against wholesale lockdowns of of a community. But Fort Myers is a little bit different because Fort Myers had one of, I think, the first coronavirus death on the East Coast. It was a, a 77-year-old woman, still unidentified. She traveled abroad, and she died right here at the main hospital that's serving a lot of the other coronavirus patients here. And it was really when most of the coronavirus was either overseas or on the other side of the country. And so there's a conflict there, right? On one hand, there's an in-your-face realization that this danger is here, this danger is in our community. But on the other hand, there's kind of a political and a, and a business force that's saying, let's keep this place open for as long as possible. It's especially because this is the season during which most businesses make most of their money. So I I really wanted to try to understand the conflict of ideas and ideologies and and just a sense of what a community should do and what it should prioritize, especially as that might be playing out across the nation.
1: And what were the steps that they put in place after that first death to try to contain the virus?
3: Fort myers leaders tried to be, and it's more than Fort Myers. It's the Fort Myers area and the county and other beaches and and this interconnected community. But they tried to kind of get together and say, what are the least business harmful steps that we can take and still keep people safe? So they said,
0: please join us. If you are considering visiting Lee County, if you're one of our seasonal residents, while we would love to host you, we ask that you stay home and stay well.
3: Can we ask people to voluntarily stay home? Can we ask people, you know, spring breakers to go home?
0: Your actions are critical in reducing the spread of COVID-19 in our community. Your decision to stay home will save lives. Be considerate. Please do your part
3: and, and stay home. for the most part, those early steps didn't work. They said, don't come to beaches and people... Still came to beaches. And so they ultimately had to close the beaches. Before they demanded that all restaurants be takeout only restaurants, they asked that they go to 50% occupancy, you know, to try to balance keeping people safe with also keeping those businesses open. So they're slowly inching toward a full scale, countywide, nobody leave their home shelter in place order.
1: And the businesses that have chosen to stay open. What have their owners said about why they're doing that? Why they're not worried about the prospect that they either could get sick themselves or could pass along the coronavirus to their customers?
3: The restaurant owners that I talk to don't want to get sick. They, and they certainly don't want their restaurant to be the epicenter of, a, of an outbreak. I mean, obviously, I'd like to see restaurants open back up. But right now, it doesn't make sense to do. It, it doesn't. And I, I understand that completely. One of the business owners that I had the most fruitful conversation with was a guy named Jay. My name is Jay Johnson. I own Bubba's Roadhouse and Saloon. It's a place that actually has, I can tell you myself, like great ribs and steak, even when it's for takeout. And you know, his business is usually booming at this point. It's difficult for me to wrap my head around it. And in 26 years in business down here in Southwest Florida, I've never, ever had to lay anyone off. And I I didn't even know how to do it. And he said that when they went to 50% occupancy, he said business dropped by 67%. And on Thursday, when he had been converted, you know, forcefully to a takeout only business, his business had dropped to 80%. (laughs) He started selling the meat out of his freezer direct to consumer because he's doing anything to stay afloat. He's been here since 94. And depending on how long this goes on, he may close his doors. We're in a survival mode. First thing I did, I stopped taking paycheck. I'm not taking any money out of the business so my employees get paid. And I can only sustain that for so long. And the people on the health side are are kind of the same way. They don't want businesses to close, but they're trying to figure out, how do I still stay open? I spoke with the county manager, and one of the things he said was that we're not having a discussion now about economic recovery, but in six months, we will be.
1: Are there people in Fort Myers who are concerned that the government isn't doing enough to to force a lockdown or force people to stay away from each other?
3: Yeah, every day there's a group of government leaders that get on this conference call and they basically argue the merits of more intensive lockdowns and and all of that stuff. Let me give you an example. John John Ganes was the second victim here. He's a 77 year old man with COPD who died of coronavirus. And they retraced his steps and found that he'd been at a nearby casino gambling. And there were some folks who said there are few things that are more likely to spread this than a casino. You know, you're touching the slot machines, you're passing around dice and cards. I don't
1: know if you've ever seen the movie Contagion, but like this is a big plot point that the patient zero is in a casino. And this is how she's able to spread this virus to like dozens of people.
3: Like many people, I saw every I saw Contagion, I said Pandemic, I saw Outbreak. But even though this is literally the plot of a movie about a contagion, the casino was still arguing after John had died. They're still making this argument that business should stay open.
1: To what extent do you think that some people or members of the government are taking their cues from President Trump in terms of how to think about this outbreak and what sacrifices are and are not justified in trying to contain it?
3: Even if they're saying that they're not making decisions based on political ideology, it's clear that they're listening to the thoughts of politicians, to the thoughts of people that they believe are well-informed and that they look to for leadership and for guidance. Several politicians, when I would ask them, you know, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about this? They'd say, well, I agree with President Trump. He said this. Um, One of the biggest things about being less restrictive or about being open for business and something is something that President Trump has said over and over and over again. And it's something that people here are saying. Also, Governor Ron DeSantis, you know, has talked about being open for business and, and things like giving local leaders the authority to decide what happens instead of having a blanket order.
1: So it seems like the government in Fort Myers, and I think in many other places around the country, are trying to thread this really fine needle where they want to encourage people to stay at home and make it a voluntary thing so that they don't come off like they're completely stifling businesses. But at the same time, it's clear that people don't really pay attention when you're just encouraging them or giving them the voluntary option of shutting their business or, or staying at home. And so you have to wonder like, how effective this is really going to be in actually containing an outbreak.
3: Yeah, because I've gotten, since I've been here, for emergency alerts, you know, the ones that I guess we've all been getting as they declare states of emergency. But the ones coming out of the county, coming out of the city aren't saying you're required to go home and all this stuff. They're recommending, they're encouraging. So it's not with, you know, the force of law. It's not a fine. It's optional. And there are people who are adhering to that option. But there are also when I'm out kind of driving around, there are also skateboarders. There's also you can get Like beer to go here. There are people stopping by these restaurants in large groups, you know, getting beer to go. And the question is, how contained can you be if there are still people out there pinballing around, interacting with people?
1: If Fort Myers was the place that saw how tragic the outcome of this could be before... You know, arguably anywhere else on the eastern side of the U.S., then why doesn't that seem to have sunk into the level of the government taking more drastic action?
3: There are some voices in government that are saying that we are inching toward a full-scale close and that are pushing forward and that are lobbying for it. But there's there's also very, very strong voices on the other side saying, are you sure? Are you 100 percent certain that? You know, this is the least restrictive thing that you can do, because if you do this, it will kill my business. The, the impact on a couple of weeks of closing, a month of closing, two months of closing is going to reverberate for years and years and years in this place. It's life versus livelihood is how one person put it. Do we keep as many people alive as possible? possible? Do we ensure that health and safety as many people as possible? And if we do, you know, are we doing in a way that does not cripple this area, this region for years and years to come?
1: Cleve Woodson is a political reporter for The Post.
4: I've been writing about the way families are dealing with having to separate grandchildren from grandparents. Which is, of course, a particularly fraught thing because a lot of grandchildren are really close to their grandparents and there's any manner of circumstances that families might be living in that make that really complicated, whether they live close by and are used to seeing each other all the time or whether they live far apart and only get to see each other a few times a year, which makes a canceled visit, a canceled vacation, like a really painful thing to contemplate. I'm Caitlin Gibson. I'm a feature writer at The Washington Post, and I write about families and parenting.
1: And of course, right now, a lot of us are supposed to be staying away from each other. But why is it particularly important to keep kids away from grandparents?
4: So, so far, it seems like kids don't seem to get this virus with the same level of severity that adults do, at least not most of the time. However, it also seems like they are pretty potent vectors. You know, they carry this virus and they can easily transmit it. So, you have kids who might be completely asymptomatic but still carrying the virus. And meanwhile, grandparents, many of them are going to be seniors, many of them might have underlying health conditions, which puts them squarely in the cohort that is particularly vulnerable to dealing with serious complications if they do get the coronavirus.
1: And so for people who are kind of stuck in the middle who are trying to take care of their kids right now while they're home from school, but are also trying to take care of their own parents, what are some of the logistical challenges that have come up for
2: people?
4: Well I talk to people who are in any number of situations. And you know, I talk to some parents who rely on grandparents to help with childcare. And so if they're trying to keep their their parents safe now, that means that what's happening is they're juggling full-time working from home in certain situations with full-time childcare without any kind of support, which is really stressful. I spoke to one mom named Katie Shea Britton, who is in a situation where it not only has an impact on her logistical planning for her family day-to-day, but again, like what she had to share says a lot about the emotional impact of this as well. We are simply in a roll with the punches mode. Um, My dad's facility is shut down which is a blessing and a curse. You know, I want him to be protected to the fullest extent. I would also very much like to see him with my own eyes and be able to know that that's what's happening. With the school closures, it's going to be a battle of wits in within our household. My first instinct once I learned that they were off of school for the next two weeks was to say, we're going to Nana's house. Um, who wants to go? Emma, do you want to stay there? Like, so... Uh, We can't do that, though. So this has been a bit of a curveball. I talked to other parents who were planning on having their parents come visit or were planning to travel to see their parents. In some situations, the grandparents in question were sick. I spoke to several folks whose grandparents in the family were either cancer patients or cancer survivors. And that's particularly fraught because, of course, you really want to be able to support those people and be there for them right now, but having kids around them is just too high of a risk to take. One woman I spoke to, Gina Woody, who's a hospice nurse in Colorado, she was talking about how her father is a cancer survivor, but his treatments left him permanently immunocompromised. And so obviously, she's keeping her kids away from him because he's at much greater risk. And I think on some level he understands that she was saying, but he's also really frustrated by that. And at one point she was saying in her conversation with me that she thinks he feels like this is just more cosmic punishment for the fact that he had to have chemotherapy and just none of it feels fair. So there are a lot of different calculations that these parents were trying to make. I spoke to one woman, a freelance writer in California named Jill Robinson, whose 10-year-old daughter is super close to her 81-year-old grandmother and they live only a block apart. And so Jill had told me that once that 14-day period passes where everyone's been kind of away from public spaces except for, you know, hypervigilant grocery store trips, they were thinking that they might try to take some chairs over into their grandmother's backyard and sit far enough apart, like quite far apart, but far enough that they could at least see and speak to each other.
1: My mom has gone through chemo recently. She had a heart attack about a year and a half ago. And so they has worked with her through a lot of her rehab. And so I think it was pretty easy for her to understand that this is something that could really affect her grandmother more so than maybe her friends at school or her parents. And so uh, we just said that it's really, really smart to, you know, give her space um, to stay away
0: from her so that we don't accidentally give her any particular germs if we happen to be carrying the virus and not showing signs of it.
4: You know, I spoke to one family whose son is a teenager and it was actually, he was the one who brought it up. He was watching the news with his mom and he said, you know what? We need to stay away from grandpa because he's 68 and I really don't want to get him sick and I don't want anything bad to happen to him. And they're extremely close. So to his mother, that was a really touching thing because it made it clear to her that he understood how serious this was and was willing to make that sacrifice. But it
1: seems like this is a time where Grandparents and elderly people stand to potentially lose the most or or have to suffer the most because a lot of grandparents and a lot of elderly people are relatively isolated, anyways, or they don't have a lot of visitors other than their close family. And if they're the ones we're going to end up having the least physical contact during these coming weeks, then it must be a really difficult emotional toll for them.
4: I think that's right. I think it's really hard for them. And, you know, in the days since. I wrote this story I've heard from a lot of grandparents have reached out to me saying, you know, this is so hard and I miss my grandkids so much. And when am I going to be able to see them and hug them again? I'm Eileen Shay. I'm Kathleen Britton's mother and grandmother Nana to her three daughters. It's been
1: a little over two weeks since I've seen the kids, <clears throat> which is the longest it's ever been. <laughs> I, I have to get my fix in under normal circumstances, if this was just a case of they had to work from home and it wasn't the quarantine period or the containment period of 14 days, I could have the kids here while she's working at home. But we can't do that yet because we haven't all gone through a full 14-day period. So that part's really difficult for all
4: of them. I mean, I'm sure the kids are missing me. They better be. And I'm terribly missing them. And I'm sure Kathleen's missing the break. I think that older folks are in a lot of pain about this. And then I think that that ripples down, I think, for the parents who are in between and have a clearer sense of how long this might go on and what the cost is, I think that's really, really hard too, because they're emotionally managing people in both directions, right? Like they've got pent up, frustrated children who really miss seeing their grandparents. And then they've got their own parents who, you know, I think for a lot of families, this virus has amplified something that we're already aware of that we try not to think too much about, which is that there's, when you're dealing with older aging, ailing family members, there's a finite number of family vacations and visits and days together that you might be able to spend in the years ahead. And so losing even one vacation or, you know, what they're saying, six to eight weeks or more being apart, that's, that's a lot. I mean, that's, that's big, and so I think the emotional toll on families, on the grandparents who, yes, as you say, are even more isolated, and on the parents who are acutely aware of the suffering that's happening with their children and with their parents, it's its just a lot to add on top of the stress that's inherent to the situation.
1: Caitlin Gibson writes about families and parenting for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you're a Washington Post subscriber, you may know that the Post has a charitable giving program. It's called Helping Hand, and right now, it's highlighting organizations that are doing important work in the coronavirus crisis, providing meals to medical professionals, as well as helping at-risk groups in need of food across the country. To learn how to support some of these organizations, go to posthelpinghand.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
0: Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Super Beats Heart Choose Advanced. From the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beet brand for heart health support,